The warm air, the sounds of baseball, it's got you thinking about hitting the road. And no matter where your adventures take you, Subaru of Gwinnett has a vehicle to get you there safely and in style. Like the 2024 Subaru Outback, sporting standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and up to 32 miles per gallon. Or the 2024 Subaru Forester, the SUV with a spacious and comfortable interior for everyone you want to bring along. Start your shopping online at SubaruofGwinnett.com, then come see us for a test drive on Satellite Boulevard in Duluth. Hello, folks, and thank you for tuning in to this special edition of Next on the Tee. I had the privilege of spending some time with one of the greatest players in golf history, Hal Sutton. Hal was the 1980 College Golf Player of the Year, the 1980 U.S. Amateur Champion, a two-time Players Champion, and the 1983 PGA Champion. Huge honor, huge thrill. Take a listen to our conversation. This segment of the show was sponsored by the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world. That remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You're only going to find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them online today to learn about their great products and their great prices. All right, now joining me here on Next on the Tee is 1983 PGA Tour Player of the Year, Hal Sutton. Let me give you some background on Hal. He's from Shreveport, Louisiana, played his college golf at Centenary College, where he was named the 1980 College Golf Player of the Year. During his time there, he won 14 college golf tournaments, was a two-time All-American and led Centenary to the NCAA Tournament. He was a two-time Trans-American Athletic Conference Player of the Year. Hal went on to win the 1980 U.S. Amateur Championship in dominating fashion, defeating Bob Lewis 9-8 in their 36-hole championship match. He turned pro in 1981, got his first win on tour in 1982 at the Walt Disney World Classic in a playoff over Bill Britton, and that year he was named the tour's Rookie of the Year. In 1983, he was named the PGA Player of the Year after winning the Players' Championship and the PGA Championship. In 1998, he won the Tour Championship here in Atlanta in a playoff over VJ Singh. In 2000, he won the Players' Championship by one stroke over Tiger Woods, saying one of the most quotable lines in golf history, be the right club today. How captained the 2004 U.S. Ryder Cup team. In all, he's won 14 times on tour. He's finished second 18 times. He has 135 top 10 finishes and 239 top 25s. And it's a huge thrill to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Hal, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Hal, I always like to start off by learning about how you first got introduced to the game of golf and and what lit the fire underneath you to make you want to be as great as you became. Um, I was playing every other sport, and a friend of my dad's gave me a set of golf clubs or gave my dad a set of golf clubs and said, you need to get Hal started playing golf because he can play it forever. And so I started playing just kind of when I wasn't playing any of the other sports and fell in love with the game. And finally, when I was 16 years old, I quit playing everything else and started dedicating myself to golf. And, you know, I was getting better fairly quick. And, you know, that keeps your interest up when you were getting better and uh you know fell in love with it went on and played college golf and then from there the tour so it's been a love affair for a long time with me and golf 
And talk about your time playing college golf at Centenary. I, I got to believe as good a junior player as you were, there were a lot of colleges knocking on your door. Why Centenary? Well, there was. Uh, you know, I narrowed it down at the time. Houston was really one of the best uh, college golf teams in the country, and it was between Centenary and Houston. And Centenary was at home, and my dad really wanted me to, you know, stay around. He was very involved in my golf game. And uh, I made the decision to do that because of him really more than anything else. Didn't hurt because we ended up having a good golf team and going to the NCAAs and I still made all American. And, uh, you know, I look back and there would have been some positive things. I, I think Houston was one player away from winning the NCAAs probably two or three times. And I was, you know, had I gone there, they'd have probably won two or three more because they had couples and McAllister and guys like that on the team, and they just needed one more guy to get it done. And uh, it would have been fun to be on a winning team, but uh, I, I I don't regret it. Couples give you a hard time about not having gone there? Uh, Blaine used to give me a harder time than Fred did, but, uh, you know, we were all good friends. We played against each other our whole career, and, you know, it all worked out good. We were still friends. <laughs> and how, when I look back over your college career, one of the tournaments you won was the 1980 LSU National Invitational. Being right there in, in Louisiana, that had to be a great victory for you. Where does that rank amongst your college victories? Uh, it was fun winning in Louisiana. Uh it's hard to win in your home state or home city or whatever, but uh, I think we try too hard in situations like that. We don't let it come to us. We're trying to go to it. And, you know, I say many times winning runs into you. You don't run into winning. And you just keep doing the things right, and eventually you win. Uh, but when you try to force it, usually it, you struggle a little bit. Later, you won the uh, U.S. Amateur in a, in a dominating fashion and a great tournament, defeating Bob Lewis 9-8 and eight at the Country Club in North Carolina. One of the largest winning margins over a 36-hole final match. What was that day like for you? Um, it was fun. I was, you know, it was a long week. You know, anytime you play, you play two medal rounds and then you play match play. And so, you know, it's a long week. And that summer was, you know, I've, I said I was going to play in five tournaments that summer, starting in the north, south, and northeast, and uh, the southern amateur, the western amateur, the U.S. amateur. I won every one of them except the uh, southern amateur. And then I ended up making a world amateur team and then won the world amateur right after that at Pinehurst as well. So, you know, 1980 was a big year for Hal Sutton. And I couldn't – I never had another year like that. Uh, it just – it didn't work out to where I could ever do that again. But uh, sometimes when the putts are falling, you know, you just keep winning. And Tiger Woods had a lot of that. How when when you came out on the PGA Tour, almost immediately the comparison started with Jack Nicklaus. I mean, some people in the media dubbed you the bear apparent. Your victory in, in, at the 83 PGA Championship came out, a one-stroke victory over Jack. You would win his Memorial Tournament in 1986. And I hate when I find out that young kids get a label like that place. I'm sort of like a kid coming up there in the minor leagues in baseball and people dub him the next Mickey Mantle, the next whatever. Expectations become hard to live up to. Was that a burden for you early in your career? 
Um, well, it is a burden because it was for me and it is for anybody else that gets labeled with that because they're making comparison to the greatest in the game when they do that. And, you know, I played the game because I love the game. Not, I can't say that day in and day out I was trying to be the best player in the world. I was trying to be the best I could be. And to compare me to somebody else is, you know, all of a sudden now I got a, I got something to match up to. And, you know, it. I struggled with it. To be honest with you, you know, I had from 82 to 86, I played really well and won six or seven times or whatever it was. And, you know, still was letting people down, so to speak. And starting in 87 and 88, I started buying horses and riding horses and, and kind of was getting away from, I played golf, but I was, I wasn't as interested. I wasn't dedicating myself to it like that because, you know, I got tired of everybody telling me, you know, you're not as good as you should be. And, uh, you know, people, they don't know what's going on in your life, but yet they still want you to achieve the greatness that they choose for you. As you tell that story, I'm thinking to myself, I mean, you won seven times. What was the expectation that you were going to be? I mean, you were sort of the Tiger Woods before there was a Tiger Woods. Winning seven well, times I, isn't hard or isn't easy to do on the PGA Tour. No, it's not easy to do. I can tell you winning, winning multiple times, two times is difficult. Sometimes winning one, you, you can backhand, back into that sometimes. But when you win multiple times on the tour, it's, it's difficult to do. And, uh, you know, that's why my hat's off for people like Tiger Woods. I mean, you know, the, I think the greatest achievement Tiger Woods has got is that he never lost sight of trying to be the best in the world. Never, ever. And that is so difficult to do when the world is telling you all the time about your failures and everything else. You know, they're, I mean, honestly, you know, we love to see people succeed, but Society likes to see people fail, too. Don Henley's song, We Love Dirty Laundry, absolutely. We deal with that a lot. Yeah. Um, What was your relationship like with Jack? I mean, did did you talk to him about the expectations? Did you guys ever talk about what that was like for you? No. I mean, we were friends, and, you know, we visited all the time. But, you know, I never really talked to him about that. I talked to him about how much I admired him and respected him. Um, but you know, I never, never really talked about him, people comparing me to him or anything else. You know, we were two different people and you were playing in two different eras. You know, one of the, I stayed with Jack Nicholas in the 87, uh, Ryder cup. I was the only single guy on the team. And so, uh, I stayed with Jack and Barbara at their house. And one morning I was sitting there having breakfast with him and I asked him, I said, do you think that you could have won as many times as you did when you did today, meaning in 87. He said, how? He said, it's different today because there's 20 guys on the tour that think they can win and that aren't afraid of each other. And he said, you know, back then, he said there was Trevino and Palmer and Player and Raymond Floyd. And other than that, I had, you know, he thought he had them beat, and they thought he had them beat. You know, he said, I was playing four or five guys every week instead of, you know, that really thought they could beat. And he said, you know, it's, it's changed. And you can see that now. A lot of people think they can win now. And it's 
you know, has progressively changed over the last 25 years. Hal, I want to talk about that 83 PGA Championship. I mean, you won that wire to wire opening rounds of 65, 66. You broke the 36 hole record. And going into that final round, you had a two stroke lead over, over Crenshaw and, and Jack was six pack. What was it like for you as a young kid sleeping on a 54 hole lead in a, in a major championship? Well, it was, uh, it was more difficult than it should have been because two weeks prior to that, I had lost a six shot lead on Sunday in the Anheuser Busch at Kingsmill. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't, I thought, you give me a six shot lead, there wasn't anybody in the world that could beat me. And honestly, Calvin Pete won the tournament, but I beat myself. I shot 77, played very poorly. And, you know, that's all you needed at that time. People started talking where well, you, you know, he couldn't, couldn't lead, couldn't lead. And, uh, you know, I was determined. I went home that week before the PGA and worked as hard as I'd ever worked in my life. And I came in on Sunday night and I said to my dad, I said, you know, you need to go out there with me because I'm going to win this tournament. I'm playing so good. I'm going to win. And so, you know, I'm paired with Trevino and Lanny Watkins the first two days and I opened with 65 the first day and really didn't miss a shot all day long. And then Saturday went and did the same thing. Felt great about my game, but, you know, having lost that big lead prior, there was some rumbling about all that sort of stuff. And so I had a four-shot lead going into number 12, and I bugged 12, 13, and 14. And Jack was birdie and everything. And I, I'll never forget on 15, I reached out, got my towel, put my head in it. I said, cannot let this happen again. And, you know, from there I sucked it up in and ended up winning the tournament. Had to, you know, made a couple of crucial putts and then hit a great five iron in there about eight feet on the last hole. And all I had to do was two putt it. But it was, uh, you know, anytime you're winning and you've got the lead and you've got to hang on to the lead. And I had several instances like that, you know, where I had the lead going into Sunday. It's difficult to win. It's easier to come from behind and win than it is to walk in there with a lead and maintain the lead. And how, like you, you mentioned, in that tournament, you had a one-stroke lead over arguably the greatest player of all time. You come back in 2000 at the Players' Championship, you're in the exact same situation. You got a one-stroke lead over somebody else that might be the greatest player of all time. You're in the, in the fairway, you have to pull off a second shot, and you hit both of them about as good as you could hit them and gave yourself that two-putt range to, to tap in and win. What's it like pulling away? First of all, what's it like standing over that second shot, knowing the situation? And then what's it like pulling it off? Well, you know, <laughs> both of those shots were perfect yardages. I, I I was always a good mid-iron player, and I didn't feel like – I felt like I could just go ahead and freewheel the shot into the hole. Uh, so I, they weren't particularly difficult shots other than all the pressure that was on. And, you know, that's what we work religiously for is to get into those situations. I'd hit millions of golf balls, you know, with fives and six irons and knew I could hit the shot. And I used to jokingly say, I, you, you have no idea how many times I came to the last hole in around by myself as a kid. And I'd say, okay, I got to, I got to par this hole to beat Jack Nicholas in the U S open or whatever. And I, I would play those kind of games with myself. And there it was reality, you know, and, and of course, 
it was two different sets of circumstances. You know, one of them, they were 17 years apart. And I, I was a kid the first time I did it. And, of course, then I was 42 years old, and Tiger was the kid whenever I beat him at TPC. And so it was two completely different sets of circumstances. In that 2000 Players' Championship, like I mentioned in your intro, it's one of the great golf quotes of all time. You you talk about, you know, playing as a kid, thinking you're going to beat Jack Nicklaus in a U.S. Open. All of us, and and, I, and that's probably literally the case, all of us will play the game when we're out there playing with our buddies and we're trying to win, whether it's just for bragging rights or a Nassau or a skin or whatever it is, and we hit that shot, we all say to ourselves, be the right club today. What's it like being associated with one of the great quotes in golf history? It's kind of cool. You know, to be honest with you, that was something I'd never have said in my life. You know, it was just, I mean, if you can somehow picture this, I've hit the shot. I had the perfect yardage. I hit it right on the correct groove in the club. It's headed right at the hole. And the only thing that could keep this from being a victory was a puff of wind or a bird or anything. You know, it's nothing could fail unless an outside circumstance took it away. And that's all I was really feeling, just be the right club. You know, it's I've done everything I can do. And how many times in life have we done things where you've executed as well as you can, but it's out of your control at that point? you got to just let it happen. And that's where that came from. And, you know, subsequently since then, I can walk through the airport and someone will holler across the airport, be the right club today. And, you know, it's just I, I'm associated with it because I said it. And Hal, I, I thought of you last year when Tiger won the Masters. I mean, it had been 11 years since he had won a major. And like you mentioned a moment ago, your second player's championship and that PGA 17 years after that first one. When that day was over for you in 2000 and everybody went home, media's gone, and you had achieved and come all the way back to being a player's champion. What was that like for you to kind of just soak it all in in your quiet moment what was that? What did that feel like for you? Well, <clears throat> yeah, you know, it, it was it was sweet because my game had deteriorated in the early nineties when I was off riding the horses and everything else. You know, I had one year where I only made like thirty five thousand dollars and missed way more cuts than I made, and you know, wondered where my game had gone, and I had just not been attentive to it. And I left the game because I felt like everybody was uh, not happy with what I was achieving. And I just didn't want the pressure of it. And uh, in 95, I decided, hey, I'm fixing to fix my game. And I started getting it back. And in 98, I won twice. And 99, I won twice. And in 2000, I won twice. And uh, probably played the best golf of my whole career during that time, 98 to 2001. And I was, you know, 30, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 in there. And how you mentioned, you know, trying to get your game back. And with, when players tend to go through a difficult stretch, a lot of times everybody's got to fix. Everyone has got to tell, well, if you just did this or if you did this the other way. Was that true for you? Was everyone kind of trying to get in your ear, trying to tell you what you needed to do? Yeah, and and honestly, it goes the other way, too. You start asking everybody, too. You know, you start turning over every stone, trying to figure out what 
uh, is wrong. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was lost and I was looking for the answer. And, you know, one thing that I've learned through all of my years of job is this is a journey. And it's a journey to see how, who the best you can be is. And, you know, I do quite a bit of teaching now. And, and to be honest with you, there is no exact answer to anybody's golf swing. There are some things you can do. You know, every time you give a lesson to someone, you're, you look at it, you try to evaluate, okay, where do we start? What is the first step? And, <clears throat> you know, you tell them what you think. And it's how hard they want to work on it. And if they can feel it and understand it and embrace it. And most of the time it takes a total commitment to make uh, swing changes for a good player. And you can work hours and hours and hours and not see much change. And, you know, there's a, we're living in a different world now because data does help you. You know, you heard the term digging it out of the dirt. You know, we dug it out of the dirt because all we had was grainy video. I mean, so we had to rely on feel. You know, we thought we were copying somebody else's swing, and then you put the two people together, and they don't swing anything alike, even though you thought you had copied their job. Now people can swing just exactly alike because the equipment that we have today, uh, you know, you can see what you're doing, and you continue to work on it. But I will make this comment. Just because you swing at it good does not make you a good player. And, you know, I see a lot of great swingers, but there's not a lot of great players. So the difference is the artistic side of the game and what's inside a person. So how, as you mentioned, your latter part of the 90s, early 2000s was just as good as you were in the early uh, to mid 80s. So did, did you figure it out? Did you ever figure out, well, this is what was wrong? Well, there's no, uh, you know, I just went to being me instead of being what everybody else thought I should be. You know, I didn't actually call on anybody to fix my game. When I finally decided to fix it, I pretty much fixed it on my own. And I had to do what I knew how to do instead of trying to do what people thought was classic or what they thought you know, was the modern day golf swing or whatever. And I wasn't worried about trying to please someone else. I was making sure that I did what I knew how to do. Cause that's, that's all you can count on under pressure. You, you can't count on, uh, and I stopped trying to be perfect. You know, someone else is perfect. I just tried to be me. One of the players that I think is that's playing out on tour right now that may be going through something similar that you went through is Jordan Spieth. Have you talked to Jordan at all and try to help him to with, hey, here's what, here's what it took for me to figure it out and get back? No, I haven't. You know, I've got to say, and if you don't walk into the self-help section, you can't be helped. And, uh, you know, it'll be when, when it's time for Jordan to fix Jordan he'll figure it out himself or he'll call on someone that has some, some understanding of where he's at. I mean, Jordan had immense expectations put on him because of the way he played. And I mean, he, he, to be honest with you, he used to look like he had fun. He looks most of the time like he's miserable out there to me. And, you know, I know the feeling, <laughs> I know the feeling, you know, you're letting yourself down. At that point, you know, you, you never thought about letting other people down. 
you were letting yourself down. All of a sudden, the world starts telling you how you're failing them, and then all of a sudden, you're not only letting yourself down, you're letting everybody else down. And it becomes miserable. I mean, you actually dread going to play. And, I mean, I remember it vividly. And, you know, I would, I was, got to where I was hitting it so bad, I didn't even want to go to the practice team. So what did it take for you? Like, did you have to get away from it from a while to to let your head clear out and let the emotion settle down and get some distance from the people and their expectations? How did how were you able to I figure hit, it out? I hit rock bottom. I lost my card in 93, I think. And I still had career money earnings to where I didn't have to go back to the tour school. I could use the one-time exemption of top 25 career money earnings which my dad tried to say, why don't you go to school? And if you don't make it, you can use that. And that way you save that. And I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, if, if I don't make it uh, next year, then it's time for me to move on and do something else. So in other words, I hit rock bottom and I said, uh, I got to do something about this. And it's it, mostly out of embarrassment. You know, you're, you're like, I'm way better than this. I have to do something about this. And, you know, rock bottom has, I mean, you, you can bounce off a of rock bottom if you care. <laughs> and how, as I was mentioning to you uh, over social media, the Ben Hogan golf company is one of our sponsors and, and you played Ben Hogan apex irons and, and uh, that apex six iron is the one that you used on the, that was the right club. With the 2000 Players Championship. Talk about your relationship with the Ben Hogan Company. Well, uh, my relationship with the Ben Hogan my dad joined Shady Oaks when I was in college. And I used to go over there and I got to know Mr. Hogan fairly well. I, uh, my rookie year, I was playing Hogan equipment and I thought they made the best equipment, especially irons, uh, going. I played. Hogan equipment a lot of my career and always was proud to carry him. You know, he, he was a, a man of perfection and not only in his own golf game and his golf swing, but also in his equipment. Knew him quite, I knew him, I can't say I knew him real well because I don't think anybody did, but I, I had many, many conversations with him and, you know, he was, uh, he was always nice and cordial, uh, didn't give you much information. He, he took that to the grave with him. On the other hand, I knew Byron Nelson really well. I worked with him for three years, and there was nothing that Byron Nelson didn't tell me about in terms of how to get better. And uh, just very different men. So, Hal, I, I know that you went through the slump that you went through, uh, came out on the other side, and like I say, had, had just as great a success as he did in the beginning of the career. When was the game uh, just a lot of fun for you? When was when was it the time that you really enjoyed being out there? Whether it was just hitting golf balls, playing with your buddies, or being on tour. Uh, I think the game was the most fun when I was a kid, and you know you play with no expectations, and you uh, you're just trying to get better every day, and you never felt the pain from failure, and uh, you know I. I've never been afraid of the pain from failure because that's when you learn the most. Uh, you know, when you succeed, you're not really analyzing what went wrong. When you fail, you know, you're usually angered by that or let down by it. And 
are embarrassed by it. And, you know, that's when you do the real soul searching to find out what went wrong. And, you know, when you're a kid, you're not thinking about either one of those things. You're just enjoying the game. And, you know, when you had to start really analyzing every shot, uh, and that's what you have to do in the, in the world of professional golf. You know, you uh, you got to turn over every stone. So is that why we don't see you out playing on the Champions Tour? Did the game just not become, it wasn't fun anymore? Well, no, it's not 100% the reason why. I've had three artificial joints. I got both hips replaced and the left knee replaced. And, you know, there's no telling how many miles I walk and how many golf balls I've hit. You know, I the world doesn't owe me any more golf. And uh, now I, if I play, I play with friends. Uh, you know, I don't need to. I traveled the world for 25 years doing it. There's no reason to do it much anymore. Uh, living out of a suitcase and in a in a hotel bed is uh, uh, it's not the best way to go through life. I, you know, I sleep in my own bed every night now. That's pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about uh, I mentioned a little bit ago that uh, you're doing a bit of teaching now catch us up what are you doing now well um, uh, going to I was teaching quite a bit and then I I thought I might go back and play some this year and I was working on my game and then this coronavirus thing crept in and shut us all down so I kind of felt like that was maybe a an omen that I shouldn't go play so I'm going to open an indoor facility here in Houston where I live, actually pretty close to champions and just got to have something to do in the game that I love. So that's what I'm going to do. Well, how, how can our listeners, whether it's folks want to get some playing lessons from you or want to stay up to date with what you're doing, catch up with you, how can they do it? Whether it's online or it's on social media. Well, it's Hal Sutton golf. We're going to, probably have this open by August the 1st. So uh, we got a lot of work to do here in the next few months, but uh, after that, you'll, you'll hear about it. Well, how, when you're ready for that, I hope you'll come back and join me again sometime. A lot of, a lot of stories and a lot of insights. I'd love to continue to, to pick your brain and hear all about, but uh, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. You're fantastic. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. And uh, anytime you need me, you can let me know. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Al. Okay. Um, all, all the right. best to you and your family. Stay safe. Look forward to catching up with you soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Al. Thank you. Have a good evening. You do the same. That was a great Hal Sutton. Give him a follow online at HalSuttonGolf.com and on Twitter at HalSuttonGolf. Really enjoyed that conversation. Hal's a fantastic guy. Looking forward to catching up with him again real soon. The warm air, the sounds of baseball, it's got you thinking about hitting the road. And no matter where your adventures take you, Subaru of Gwinnett has a vehicle to get you there safely and in style. Like the 2024 Subaru Outback, sporting standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and up to 32 miles per gallon. Or the 2024 Subaru Forester, the SUV with a spacious and comfortable interior for everyone you want to bring along. Start your shopping online at SubaruofGwinnett.com, then come see us for a test drive on Satellite Boulevard in Duluth. This morning in the Atlanta airport, no one's missing a meal on Mac Wilburn's watch. With 11 restaurants to serve passengers, he's got dining for every destination. 
And it all started when Mac talked with First Horizon Bank about opening a franchise in the airport. Now it's open for business and cleared for takeoff. First Horizon Bank, let's find a way. Go to firsthorizon.com slash Mac. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com.